my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. If it's Friday, a federal judge could decide as early as today to impose a potential nationwide ban on a key abortion pill. As new polling reveals just how massive of a political problem the abortion issue is for the GOP. Plus, defending democracy, the world marks one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. As the U.S. and its allies send more promises and more aid and more weapons and more assistance. And a dramatic encounter between a U.S. surveillance aircraft and a Chinese military jet with an NBC reporter on board. Our exclusive reporting amid the escalating tensions between Washington and Beijing. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Chuck Todd reporting from Washington. We're going to get to all of the one-year commemorations of the war in Ukraine in the show. We're going to start here with maybe the most important political story right now. The Republican Party has a big problem. It's an abortion problem. Right now, activists and lawmakers on both sides of the abortion issue are waiting to see if a federal judge will, will rule today to severely limit access to a common abortion method medication abortion. It's also known as the at-home abortion pill. Currently, medication abortions account for more than half of all abortions in America. At a reproductive rights event at the White House today, Vice President Kamala Harris called the lawsuit a partisan attack on the ability of doctors to prescribe medicine. This suit is backed by 22 Republican attorneys general and 67 Republican members of Congress. The case has once again put a spotlight on how the Republican position on abortion is far outside the mainstream. How far do you say? Well, I'm going to show you in a minute. Because this could translate into a major political liability. And perhaps 2022 was a bigger warning sign on this issue than maybe not everybody has realized just yet. 2024, voters are going to head to the ballot box again. And they're going to decide which party controls the Senate and the presidency. And the abortion issue could become key. Don't believe me? Look at these numbers. The Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI, just released a massive, the most comprehensive survey on the abortion issue we've seen to date. 20,000 people covering all 50 states. So we're able to see this by state, by demographic group, all sorts of ways. This is really solid research work, and it's some of the most comprehensive polling we've ever seen. So let's get started with it. Number one, this push to ban abortion pills. Look how unpopular this is. 72% oppose this. They oppose this. This was this part of the poll was conducted uh, about eight months ago. This is where the numbers were, and we've seen these numbers don't change. Let me show you about the issue of abortion in general. Should abortion be legal? What's been interesting here, over the last 13 years, Republicans have been trying to roll back the rules on abortion in various states. And as they've been doing that, the public has gone in the opposite direction. Right now, support for legal abortion is at 64%. That is nearly 10 points higher than it was just over a decade ago. And look at this by party, 64% among all Americans. It's 86% believe abortion should be legal in most cases among Democrats, 68% among independents. And look at Republicans here. 
It's almost, it's 36%, basically half of where independents are. This is a case where essentially Republicans are far outside the rest of the country on this issue. You want to look at it by state? 43 states, 43 states in this survey have a majority that support abortion in all or most cases. Only seven do not. Let me show you by the battleground. Look at the presidential battleground states. Here were the six closest presidential battleground states. Should abortion be legal in all or most cases? Only one state of the six, of our big six here, uh, is under 60% illegal in uh, most or all cases. That's Georgia. Now let's look at the Senate map in 2024. The three most vulnerable Democratic-held seats are in red states of Montana, Ohio, and West Virginia. And look at these abortion numbers in these three states. 64% supported in most or all cases in Libertarian heavy Montana, 66% in Ohio, and it's under 60%, but 57% is a pretty robust number there. Bottom line, some Republicans, by the way, have tried to sow some doubts about these numbers. They question the polls' financial backers and some of their pro-abortion rights interests from this organization. But they're not disputing the data or the methodology. Bottom line, this poll is the best evidence yet that the public essentially believes the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe was wrong emphatically so, and they're telling us at the ballot box and in polls. And right now, the Republican Party appears to be on the wrong side of an issue that may be of huge importance on uh, in the next presidential election and set of Senate elections. Dasha Burns joins me now from Amarillo, Texas, where we are waiting on a potential ruling today on medication abortion. So, Dasha, it's all, let's see, we got another, I guess, two hours to the business day where you are in the central time zone. Do we expect uh, one of those 5 p.m. rulings? Well, Chuck, we've been watching this case for quite some time now because it is incredibly significant. Perhaps the most consequential ruling could come out of this court here since the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade. Today is the filing deadline, so this is the last chance for parties to file those briefs. And from there, we could hear from this judge at any moment, essentially. It, it could come today. It could come next week. And what happens behind me in this courthouse here, Chuck, make no mistake, it could very well have nationwide impact, even even in states, let's be clear about this, even in states where there are robust protections for abortion rights. Here's why. At the heart of this case is a, the lawsuit is challenging the FDA's approval of the drug Mifeprestone, take it alongside Mesoprostol. It's a two-drug regimen for abortions in the United States. It's the most commonly used method for abortion in the U.S. The plaintiffs in these, this case, a group of anti-abortion uh, medical organizations and Doctors say that the drugs are dangerous and they say that the FDA did not uh, properly evaluate their safety when approving these drugs. We talked to both the plaintiffs and the providers who would be impacted by this decision. Take a listen to what we heard. We're asking the court to do what is right to follow and ask the FDA to follow the law by taking these dangerous drugs off the marketplace. I want to, to start off by being perfectly clear that the uh, the evidence is solid, the science is solid behind mifepristone as being a safe medication. Uh, the complication rate is less than 1%, uh, and there have been numerous studies over the years that have documented the safety of this medication. 
Now, Chuck, the FDA told us that it doesn't comment on ongoing litigation, but in a court filing said that the claims in this lawsuit are, quote, unsupported by any evidence. Let's be clear. The FDA approved this drug in 2000. Since then, more than 5 million people have taken Mifeprestone, with 28 deaths reported. And in a court brief, the country's leading group of OBGYN say that Mifeprestone is, quote, exceedingly safe and effective, calling the lawsuit ideological, not scientific. Now, there's also a question about why are we here? Why are we in Amarillo, Texas? Mm -hmm. Critics of the lawsuit have accused the plaintiffs here of, quote, forum shopping. The judge in this case is a conservative Trump-appointed judge. If he sides with the plaintiffs here, this will go to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is also conservative-leaning, and then could end up in the Supreme Court. So you can see uh, the pathway there. Now, there is another drug. There's mesoprostol, the second drug in the in the regimen here, which could be taken on its own. And clinics right now are preparing to provide that option potentially for patients. But mm-hmm. both the FDA and the providers that we've spoken with say that this is going to lead to an increase in surgical abortions that's going to even more so overwhelm clinics that are already strained after uh, Dobbs, the Dobbs decision overturned Roe versus Wade. And what providers say they've seen since that Supreme Court decision is just a general chilling effect for providers because there's such a legal gray area in so many states right now, Chuck, that doctors are are scared to prescribe and and to take certain types of actions here, Chuck. And what happens here with this ruling could only add to that concern, Dasha, in Amarillo, Texas. First, Dasha, thank you. So joining me now to dive further into the politics of the abortion issue, and those poll numbers we mentioned up top, is our panel today, Eugene Scott, senior politics reporter at Axios, Amy Walter, the editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report. Maria Teresa Kumar, President and CEO of Voto Latino, an NBC News contributor. And Brendan Buck, a former advisor to Republican speakers Boehner and Ryan, also an NBC News political analyst. Amy, we made a big deal out of this because it feels as if not only is this a huge issue for the Republican Party, but the country seems to be moving even more so in an abortion rights direction since Dobbs. It, it, you are seeing this evidence here, and the, it seems like the Republican Party is pulling itself further away. We're in an, something's got to give. Right. And we are on the precipice of a Republican primary for president where these issues are going to be front and center. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing about how this issue played in the last election, right? Everybody tried to figure out which was going to be more important, abortion, the economy, abortion or the economy. The answer was really both. It depended on what, both and, right? So in states, what surprised me, I guess, the most was that in states where abortion restrictions were put on the books, mm-hmm. were passed into law, Georgia, Texas, Florida, mm-hmm. Republicans did really well. Yeah. In states where the threat of more abortion restrictions were on the ballot, literally, mm-hmm. Michigan being an example of that. Right. To me, the issue was the candidates themselves and how they talked about this mm-hmm. issue in Pennsylvania and uh in Arizona, they were over the top versus being, let's say, another Republican candidate, Brian Kemp, et cetera, who's talking about being reasonable. So the debate really hasn't happened in a national way. It still has happened at the state state. level. Yeah. I I look at, there's one more race I'd bring up, Eugene, that to me, I'm starting to question whether we spent too much time 
pre, uh, either crediting or blaming Trump for the results or Trump-like candidates and not enough on abortion. Because the only place where a Democrat incumbent governor lost was in a state where abortion rights were already enshrined in the Constitution, and that was Nevada, mm-hmm. right, where it was off the table, mm-hmm. where he didn't have to have a discussion, and the economy got yeah. to be yeah. front and center, where it wasn't front and center. And so it this just looks like, and I don't, and I see no evidence that GOP knows how to get out of this box. Well, uh, last weekend, we know Kevin McCarthy uh, was talking to GOP donors, and he seemed to adopt the talking point that Mitch McConnell has been emphasizing, which is candidate quality. He said that states that had people who ran for the governor's race in the Republican Party uh, who lost, lost in part because mm-hmm. not just uh, their quality of the right. House candidates, but also the gubernatorial candidates. And so what I think we're going to see Republicans doing moving forward is saying, how do we get people at the top of the ticket who are not as extreme uh, as we have seen in some of these states like Arizona, like Pennsylvania, and even Georgia. I mean, we we remember Herschel Walker and his whole abortion stories. That didn't help that party. You know, Brendan, the RNC just did a resolution at their winter meeting that shows that they did not, there's certainly no, they're not looking at the polling on abortion. They said the Republican National Committee urges Republican lawmakers in state legislatures and in Congress to pass the strongest pro-life legislation possible, such as laws that acknowledge the beating hearts and experiences of pain of the unborn. This is not what the public wants. No, and we've been making statements like that for decades, really, and it just really hadn't had any real consequences until now. We are a party where, at the national level, we're being defined by state house legislators. You know, instead of having a national message that explains, even if you're pro-life and then you support overturning Roe, talking about how you're going to take care of mothers or, or, or new, new newborn um, children, there's a way to talk about this that is a little less politically damaging, but no one has taken Has anybody taken, figured it out? Nobody's taken that over. I mean, instead, we're being defined by mm. states that are going to the far extremes, which is in conflict with how we've talked about this forever, which is that we want reasonable middle ground restrictions. And instead, we're going all the way and it's catching up with Why us. Why can't yeah. you do that? But, yeah. well, because I think it is happening. Why can't you go back to that? It's about the states. Well, I, I think you could do it, but, no, nobody, but nobody seems to have the, the, but, the courage to do it. I mean, yeah. the first the first slate of bills the House took up this year was anti-abortion measures, mm-hmm. and which tells me, you know, the people that they're listening to, the people that make the most noise, uh, don't see any real reason to change course. Well, and that's when you talk, you hear Mitch McConnell talking about candidate quality. Candidate quality is true, but not for a primary. For a primary, it's yeah. the most radicalized part of a party that will actually come out. It's the ones that are more modern, independent, that stay home for primary voters. Yeah. And so that that is their challenge, is that they have gone so far to the right that they have to have these conversations. I mean, it's not shocking that when they run up for re-election or they aspire to be president, they're like, don't forget that I was the one that introduced the anti-abortion bill. The only thing to keep an eye on is that Republican voters are also that's moving right. away from it. No, no they, they are. No, I mean, they are. No, it, they are. It, it, but in that sense, right, they, they, they don't, we, we saw it in, in we this saw in Kansas. Sur- and also yeah, in this yeah, survey yeah. Right. indicated where they're saying, look, clearly there are plenty of Republican voters who are very pro-life, who are willing to support candidates who are not, right. if they agree with them on the other issues. But... I don't know if they can get there. Right. Well, the, but the challenge is, again, is who comes out to vote in primaries. Yeah. And on both sides, it's the, the it's their base. And right now their base is highly radicalized. And so those independent moderate voters are going to have to decide, am I going to actually go for the one that might be moderate? Or maybe I just stay home or I go for the moderate Democrat, which is actually what we saw in the midterm. And, you know, Amy, I, I, look, I think a presidential nominee can talk their way out of some stuff. You can do that sometimes. And Donald Trump certainly is trying on this issue in a weird way. It's his judges that overturned it, but he's going, hey, they went too far. But to me, the ones that are really trapped are the Senate candidates. I mean, I looked at this this morning. I went, oh, 
This is how Democrats hold the Senate. It was just suddenly you realize, because it just looks like an impossible map for them to navigate. And then you look, oh, wait, look at the abortion issue in Montana Mm -hmm. and in Ohio and in West Virginia. And one issue in a Senate race can be enough. Well, what uh, this is a uh, Democratic group did polling after the election. Navigator Research Mm -hmm. looked at the people who said they didn't approve of the job that um, Biden was doing on the economy, Mm -hmm. including 13 percent who said they were somewhat unfavorable. The number one issue for those 13 percent, abortion, not the economy. So this is where we got really kind of, you know, uh, I don't think the after action report is fully. uh, Let's just say I don't think we fully know. Exactly. Everything that I think this was more of an abortion election. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. That's right. Right. That those folks who they say the economy is bad. But when you really push them to say, well, what is a more important issue to you, Mm -hmm. inflation or abortion access? They picked abortion. Well, and to Amy's point, what was surprising you was that it was dads that had swayed more to actually vote against the abortion. So it wasn't the traditional it's going to be the moms, it's going to be the women. No, it was the people who had who had fathers who had daughters that were part of that. And that is, I think, something that's incongruous with the Republican platform, because that's also their base. I want to pick up something, Eugene, that Brendan brought up, which is how Republicans could start to talk about this differently. You know, when 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 the Mississippi passed their law to basically get this to the Supreme Court, I had Governor Reeves on the show. And that was all Governor Reeves talked about. He goes, you know what, we as a party need to do better about supporting women when they have kids after the child is born and while they're pregnant. And we, we need to give them more resources and we should be doing these things. And I've, you've heard at times Marco Rubio talk about this. I'll be curious to see if a presidential candidate really tries to grab this and, and actually makes this, because it would be also something to hand out, like money. Like, look, we know voters like that too. Right. I mean, there's, it's been a long time since we've heard anything about compassionate conservatism. There, <laughs> there was a time when that is what was the main line uh, viewpoint on this issue, t- t- which is what Brendan was making note of. Uh, some say Nikki Haley would be perfectly positioned to take this lane for for a host of reasons. The question becomes, will she be able to uh, in a party that has so many individuals in its base that are far more vocal than Haley who view this issue quite differently? All you need to know is how the Iowa caucuses work, Brendan. Mm, yeah. And the fact is, Rick Santorum had an abortion position that was outside the Republican mainstream in 2012, but it was really fired up voters in the caucuses in Iowa. Yeah, it's not the first time, the only issue where we're held captive by a small sliver of our party. And we, again, we've been making this pact with social conservatives for, for decades and it, and it didn't really matter. I'm not actually convinced that talking about these things differently is necessarily going to win the argument, but at least it gives you something to do to change the you conversation. You need to change the subject, from, right? From yeah. where's yeah. the line, which yeah. is never a good conversation to have, to how are you trying to be part of the solution, which is what people are looking for when they talk to someone. Let me ask you this. We, the, the, the pushback I'll always get from from my Republican friends are, but Democrat, but Democrats position on abortion on demand is not popular. And I, and I always say, but where's that being debated? Yeah, well, the, the problem is Republicans, again, are being defined in places like Texas and Georgia and other states where they're going well beyond what we had long talked about. Again, something that, you know, as working in Republican politics, a message I carried for a long time was that we just want to have somewhere in the middle a reasonable standard where, you know, at some point it is illegal. And that is no longer the conversation. It's an all or nothing. And if it's all or nothing, Republicans are going to lose that conversation. And I, and it, I guess the question now is... It, at what point do Democrats need to, is it, because it looks like this has to get codified in Congress. Yeah. And that it's, so do Democrats need to be 
campaigning on a piece of legislation. This, this is what we're going to do. We're going to codify this. We're going to codify Roe or Roe Plus or whatever you want to call it. I don't know if they need a piece of uh, legislation, but they need a framework in which they're going to actually put forward so that you can get a lot of the moderate independent Republicans. And I think that is how you actually get to the White House. Mm -hmm. Because it's not, and, and that's what the midterm taught us, that it wasn't just the most progressives of the Democratic base, but it was independent, moderate Republicans who felt either they sat home or they joined the party because they said democracy is at stake. Mm -hmm. So what are the arguments around democracy perhaps that we could say about women's rights around abortion. Uh, there we're starting to facilitate what that what the framework could look like. <laughs> but, that, that's, but that's, I think, where Democrats would get in trouble, too. If they had to legislate something, and I think... Well, that, I, I think, think the party... I, well, I'm curious that, about right. it. I don't yeah, know. The party that's would that's never why it would be a framework. That's yeah, why the party okay. would never allow them to do anything that other than there would be no restrictions at any time, and that would be deeply unpopular, I right. think, and they would have a very hard time passing that. So they run, in, in some ways, they run into the same problem that we do, that you have to go to the extreme. Well, here's the... I, I, no, yeah. 20 weeks. To pass something? Well, Absolutely. 20 weeks, arguably, if you say, what's the compromise? If you really were just looking at it, what's the compromise between 24 and 15? You might say 20. Could a majority of Democrats do that, Amy? No. Yeah. That's probably untrue. So. But right. here, here's the bigger question. Can uh, Ron DeSantis run on a 15-week ban, or does he need to come out for something stronger? Mm. Especially it's when he great, goes to... Look, right. I, thought, exactly right. I always thought... Because I thought 15 is easier to defend. You say, 15, this is very reasonable. This Mo is very what is it, 90% of abortions are done right. before Most the first Most people 15. Are, want yeah. somewhere in... That question But he is, doesn't want to own it. No. Nobody... You know, no. the 15-week thing pulls well if you say five or six different options, and it's, all right, it's the best of the bad options. But that's the problem that, that the party has, and nobody wants to own 15 weeks. Nobody says, this is the right policy. Everybody looks at it as this is a compromise policy. Right. And nobody wants to be excited about compromise. Well, because you risk in an effort to win people losing the people who get you yeah. that far, right? And yeah. everyone we'll is do the focused door on the base. Yeah. Or what would be really wonderful is just to have let the science actually take place and actually be the one, the determinant factor of when it's actually safe for a woman to have, have an abortion. But that's science. harder. Science. You're asking, <laughs> science. You're asking right. for, for metrics and things like Medical that. Medical procedure. Like. Oh, my God. Your demands are so high. <laughs> Maria Teresa, it's nice to see you. Brendan, thank you. Uh, Eugene and Amy, happy Friday. Today marks one year since Russia's Russian tanks rolled over the Ukrainian border. How the war has changed the world and what's ahead in the battle over Ukrainian sovereignty and global democracy. Plus, the political influence campaign of Sam Bankman-Fried. We have new details about the allegedly illegal campaign donations of the FTX founder. Watch and meet the press now. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.
Welcome back around the world today. Ukraine's allies are marking one year since the start of the war, when Russia first invaded Ukraine in the biggest military campaign in Europe since World War II. Here was the scene in the capital of Kyiv earlier today. Ukrainians commemorated the day with a somber ceremony honoring the tens of thousands of Ukrainians who have died in this war. President Zelensky vowed to defeat Russia as long as Ukraine's allies remained united like a fist against Moscow. And he said Ukrainians have proven invincible after a year of pain, sorrow, faith and unity. Hours later, President Biden held a virtual meeting at the White House with fellow G7 leaders who released a statement reaffirming their unwavering support for Ukraine for as long as it takes. White House also announced today additional sanctions against Russia and additional military aid for Ukraine. And at the United Nations, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, urged all countries to remain committed to supporting Ukraine's sovereignty. No country has endured greater hardship from Russia's war than Ukraine. But almost every country has felt the pain. And yet... Nations around the world continue to stand with Ukraine because we all recognize that if we abandon Ukraine, we abandon the UN Charter itself and the principles and rules that make all countries safer and more secure. The UK also announced additional sanctions on Russia as well today. Joining the United States, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak led a minute of silence outside 10 Downing Street in London in memory of those lost in the war. And a giant Ukrainian flag was unfurled outside of the EU Parliament in Brussels in honor of the first anniversary. As for the future of this war, a new UK intelligence report claims that Russia is no longer focused on taking new territory. Instead, its focus is to exhaust Ukraine's military capabilities over a long campaign on the eastern part of the country. Simply put, they're trying to turn this into a war of attrition a la World War I. Let me bring in Richard Engel. <clears throat> who's in Ukraine and has been uh, for some time over the last few weeks. And, and Richard, you know, we're having a, a heated debate over here in this country about how much longer do we uh, aid Ukraine and how quickly do we get them new weapons? And I'm detecting something here, Richard, which is a lot of Democrats who support this war now believe the Biden administration's going too slow, that there's, uh, they're only giving Ukraine enough support to fight, not enough support to win. What are you seeing and what are you hearing? Well, that's the same thing we're hearing from from Ukrainians. They say that they're very appreciative of the weapons that they're getting. And four Leopard tanks arrived today from Poland, but there were four of them. And what are you going to do with four tanks against the Russian military? Uh, so Ukrainians are a little concerned that uh, they are given just enough not to lose but not enough to win the war and that if it takes a lot of time uh, that if it's as long as it takes as president biden has said many many times uh, we are in this uh, war for as long as it takes but U ukrainians aren't sure how long that is and how much longer 
they can take uh, if this war lasts another two, three, five years? Will there be any infrastructure left in this country? It's it's sort of a slow bleed right now uh, down here in the south and, and in the east where the, the power grid is attacked almost daily mm -hmm. and then crews have to rush in with the tools that they have under fire sometimes, repair the power grid and then rush back and repair it again. Uh, how long can you keep doing this? Uh, they would like to have weapons to deliver a a knockout blow and they're they're looking forward to this these tanks and armored vehicles arriving but to go to your point uh, yes they, they they definitely worry about the, the piecemeal uh, yeah. way that aid has been delivered military aid what do you observe on the Russian side of things we know that they're digging World War one like trenches that they really are trying <clears throat> to make whatever uh, whatever offensive the Ukrainians want to do extraordinarily hard to conduct and they want to preserve their land bridge, if you will, that they've been able to create with Crimea. But is it really a defensive posture? Do you see them in an offensive posture at all anymore? Uh, I've spent a lot of time on, on the frontline areas over the last three weeks. And uh, in some areas, there's intense fighting around Bakhmut. Uh, but in other parts where the Russians are firing, advancing. Uh, it doesn't look that much different than it did a month ago, two months ago. In fact, the head of Ukrainian intelligence just said uh, a couple of days ago that the quality of the Russian uh, advance is so poor that some field commanders barely even know that it's taking place. And I was in, in one frontline position uh, not far from Uladar, and we were speaking with the, the, the local commander there, and he, he said more or less the same thing, that yes, the Russians are on the offensive, but they're low on ammunition, maybe have even less ammunition than his troops did, and that they are conserving it. Uh, so, uh, yes, the Russians are, are launching an offensive, but they're relying heavily on mercenaries. They're focusing it mm -hmm. primarily around Bakhmut, which is this one symbolic target for Russia. Uh, so so the, the offensive, from what I could see, of what I've uh, been able to, to learn and report, does not seem to be... I don't know if impressive is the white way to describe it, but does mm -hmm. not seem to be as overwhelming or overpowering as the offensive that was launched last year. Not even a percentage yeah. of it, in fact. Um, politically, you say that, that, that there's an exhaust, that Ukrainians are fatigued, obviously, that this has been tough. Um, are you noticing, are there any cracks in Zelensky's support, or does he have this country as united today as he did a year ago? As united today as a year ago, if not more united, mm -hmm. uh, Zelensky is extraordinarily popular. And I wouldn't say people here are fatigued. They don't mm -hmm. have that luxury. If you fatigue, you, you, you give die. up, yeah. you lose your house, you yeah. lose your country. They're tired. But uh, fatigue isn't an option. People here compare this to a home invasion. Their, their home is, is being attacked. There are Russian troops on their soil. Uh, Russian troops have, uh, are accused of carrying out tens of thousands of war crimes. So they, they don't have the option to take a vacation from that or, or allow themselves to be fatigued. They've moved their families to, to safety. Generally, uh, it's, it's men uh, of, mm -hmm. of fighting age who are in areas where I am right now, in the south and in the east. You basically only see military vehicles on the road. And once Ukrainians know that their families are in a, in a safer fallback position in the west, along the borders uh, with, with Poland or in Poland or other European countries, uh, they're, they only have one thing to focus on, and that's defending their country, and they're still doing that. All right, Richard Engel, thanks for staying up late for us tonight. Uh, Richard, as always, sir, please stay safe Not a problem. as well. Thank you. Still ahead, U.S. military and diplomatic experts are going to weigh in here at this table about the possibilities of peace or escalation.
in this war. But first, in April 2014, just a month after Russia annexed Crimea, the then prime minister of Ukraine joined Meet the Press, and he called on the Obama administration to deliver military aid as violence swelled in the eastern part of the country. Is Ukraine strong enough militarily to stop Russia in the east? If not, what specifically will you ask the Obama administration for? Do you need modern weaponry? Do you need advanced lethal weaponry to stop the Russians? We need a strong and solid state. We need the financial and economic support. We need to overhaul Ukrainian military. We need to modernize our security and military forces. We need the real support. We need to be in a very good shape in order to stop Russia. And for this shape, we need to have and to get the real support from our Western partners. Welcome back. One year since Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, the world remains largely united in its support for Kyiv. Yesterday, the UN voted overwhelmingly in favor of a resolution calling for the end of the war. 141 countries voted in favor of the resolution, while 32 countries, including China, abstained. Six countries, including Belarus, North Korea, and Syria, joined Russia in voting against the resolution. Look, the abstentions are something that we shouldn't totally overlook. A lot of African abstentions in there that uh, go, it certainly showcase our lack of diplomacy in that continent these days. But with me now on set is former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, and a former commander of the U.S. Army in Europe, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. Bill, let me start with you. Uh, you and I were just talking earlier. I, one of the small shifts I've noticed in the last two weeks, um, you know, has always been the bipartisan group of, of, of congressional hawks that have been very supportive of what's going on. Uh, the Democratic ones are now starting to get a little critical of the Biden administration, moving too slow. Stop, you know, this is go faster. Give them enough to win, not enough to survive. Fair? Chuck, we have said all along that the focus has to be on Ukrainians winning. Mm -hmm. The administration has not yet said that. They've been working toward that, and they've been moving up the ladder in terms of the kinds of weapons that they've been willing to send. But they need to be able to say, they need to say, mm -hmm. our goal is for Ukraine to win. And that then opens the door. Then they will You don't win. like the phrase strategic? What is the, what is the phrase that they're using? I don't like as long defeat. as it takes. Oh, I, don't oh, okay. like, I don't like as long as it takes. I mean, unless they say as long as it takes for Ukraine to win. Okay. But the Ukrainians don't like to hear as long as it takes. They know, the Ukrainians know that time's not on their side. Mm-hmm. They need to win soon. They need mm -hmm. to break through those lines right now uh, that you were showing earlier. Right. General Hodges, one year later, I mean, look, the caution a year ago, you know, in the moment is understandable. In hindsight now, are we still too slow in our support or not? Chuck, if you'll allow me, uh, what the report by Rick Engel we just watched is why he's one of my favorite journalists <laughs> What a terrific report, clarity, and um, really uh, very effective. And, of course, uh, having one of America's best diplomats uh, on this program right now is good for me. Yeah, we, I agree we are too slow. And the problem is that our government, despite the incredible job that the administration has done of keeping more than 50 nations together, certainly the Kremlin would have never expected that, what has been delivered is terrific. But it doesn't matter how much it is unless it's enough for Ukraine to win. And so what we need to hear from the president is some clarity about 
the outcome. We spent 20 years in Afghanistan, and I never heard any president say, we're going to win. It was never totally clear what we were trying to do. So that's the burden on our political leadership. Explain to all of us the desired strategic outcome. All right, but let me put it back on you, General, which is what does victory look like for Ukraine? No, this is easy. Victory for Ukraine means total restoration of all their sovereign territory, return of all the deported uh, thousands of Ukrainian children who have been deported by Mm -hmm. Russia, uh, war crimes accountability, uh, and then an ironclad security guarantee. There will not be any investment. There will be no Marshall Plan unless there is an ironclad security guarantee. That means... You didn't say the word. I was just going to say it means where Crimea was my follow. Okay, finish your thought. Sorry, I didn't mean to uh, steal your sandwiches, as the Brits say, (laughs) but Crimea is it. That is the decisive terrain. As long as Russia controls Crimea, the Ukrainians will never be able to open up their ports on Sea of Azov, never be able to really use Odessa. So there should be zero pressure from us um, on Ukraine to give up. Crimea. And yet, Bill, I feel like it's not just us. That when, it, when, when he says us, I feel like the Western side of the, of the European alliance uh, and some folks over at the Pentagon would like Crimea to be off the table. I don't think so, Chuck. I don't hear that from anywhere in the Nobody says it. No publicly, one says it. But no nobody wants it. to say, <clears throat> but they always follow it with, you know, Crimea is Putin's red line. No, well, they do say sometimes, which is a mistake. Which is but a mistake. by saying that, you're introducing the idea that it's too, by, that it might be too violent. By to saying that, they're playing into the Putin's line. Right. That's exactly right. Because uh, Crimea is just as much as Ukraine, as much, just as much Ukraine as, uh, Lviv. Um, it's it's Ukraine. If we care about the the principle of territorial integrity, so why do we choke on this? When I say choke, meaning we, we we don't say what General Hodges says. We don't say what you say. Every single one of our diplomats, well, Crimea, you know, that's for the Ukrainians to decide. It's for the Ukrainians to decide, and the Ukrainians have decided. Right. That's the key. Yes. The Ukrainians have decided. They know what winning is. General Hodges is yeah. exactly right. Anyway, the Ukrainians, the reason it's easy, is Ben says it's easy, because the Ukrainians have made it very clear. They want all the Russians right. out of their country. All right, so if that's the clarity, if that's what victory looks like, General, what do the Ukrainians need from us to execute that uh, plan? Yeah, long-range precision weapons. Uh, there are only two ways to get on the Crimean Peninsula on land. One is the Kerch Bridge, which the Ukrainians have already hit once, and I expect they'll revisit it. <laughs> the other is the so-called land bridge. So you have to isolate Crimea from the rest of uh, of Ukraine, and especially uh, isolate it from Russia. You do that with long-range precision weapons, and then you make the peninsula untenable for Russian forces. If you if if you give them a TACOMS or something like a TACOMS of the range of 300 kilometers, the Black Sea Fleet has already left mm-hmm. Sevastopol. Okay, so that's this is how we do it. Now, what's happening up in uh, in the east around Bakhmut is very important, but it's not strategically significant. The Ukrainian general staff has figured out that they can they can stop Russian forces and bleed them out using territorial defense force and National Guard forces around Bakhmut as they prepare their a large armored force that I think they're going to use late May, June in a strike towards Sea of Azov, right. which would be an important part of isolating Crimea. So they, so the Ukrainians need the ability to do that. I, I would assume the Biden administration doesn't want to be in the same place a year from now as we are today, as 
in some ways, if you told them where we would be today a year ago, they'd be ecstatic. They won't feel that way now, right? So is that the, is that the way to basically pitch this to Biden? Like, look, what's in your best interest? Be selfish and transactional about it. You can't be in a stalemate a year from now. You can't be in a stalemate. Um, and it's, it's terrible for the United States, but it's horrible for the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't be in the same place next year. They can't. That's why they want to do exactly what General Hodges just said. That is breakthrough. Use these new weapons mm-hmm. in new formations, in newly trained units to break through and cut off that land bridge. If you cut off the land bridge, then suddenly they're isolated. And they then are Crimea, isolated. Then Crimea is realistic. Crimea is realistic. Yeah. And, I mean, Ben's been saying this for a while, but, but the Ukrainians also say they're going to take back a lot of this yeah. territory by military and a lot of it by diplomacy. General, explain why the Ukrainians would need fighter jets. I mean, could they ever really get air superiority over the Russians? Well, Chuck, uh, you know, I, I'm always reluctant to talk about specific platforms because then you get tied up in how long it takes. Yeah. You know, every, everybody's an expert now on what kind of fuel the Abrams tank uses. <laughs> uh, so uh, what matters, what I think matters is capability. Yeah. They need the capability uh, well, let me say it this way. General Cavoli, the Supreme Allied Commander, he said, precision can defeat mass if you have enough time. And the only advantage the Russians have is mass infantry. And mass infantry requires mass artillery. Mass artillery requires headquarters, ammunition storage, and transportation. So if the Ukrainians had the, the long-range precision strike capability yep. to hit those things, then this is over. Whether that's a bomb coming off an F-16 uh, ATACMs, a uh, uh, small diameter bomb, or dr- Gray Eagle drones, whatever it is, the capability is what matters the most. Bill, do you, do you, what, if you were to identify um, the hurdle here in Washington, what would you identify as to get this to get this aid moving faster? I think that I think we have the capability to do this, mm-hmm. um, and the the long range fires that uh, yeah. General Hodges is talking about that's not that's not at all a problem for for escalation concerns mm-hmm. because we're already providing long range fires of these missiles just a little bit longer. Right. So I think that that's that's not a hurdle. So what's the hurdle? The hurdle is a hesitation. The hurdle is a hesitation. There's not clear why there's not a, a, a decision on those on those weapons there. Well. You guys have given me just more fodder (laughs) for my conversation with Jake Sullivan on Sunday morning. So thank you both, Ambassador Taylor, General Hodges. You guys were terrific, so thank you. Up next, we have an NBC News exclusive. We're going to take you inside a U.S. Navy mission above the South China Sea. And we ended up, our reporter ended up in a close encounter with a Chinese fighter jet. Where do you see all this? You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. Relations between the United States and China are at an incredibly fragile place right now, with the U.N. ambassador telling NBC News that it would be a, quote, game changer if China provides lethal weapons to Russia in their fight with Ukraine. China is using today's anniversary in the war to unveil its own peace plan, despite no signs from Putin that he plans to back away from the fighting. But the war in Ukraine is not the only source of tension in the United States and China relationship. There's also the ongoing issue of China's militarization of the South China Sea, which is a key maritime passage that includes some of the world's most vital shipping lanes 
and which China has claimed sweeping sovereignty over or attempted to claim. China has now built man-made islands with military bases in these waters. And to counter China's military expansion, the U.S. regularly flies and sails through these contested waters. NBC News, in fact, was on board an American patrol aircraft when a Chinese fighter jet appeared a few hundred feet away. Take a look. U.S. officials say those types of encounters are happening more frequently. NBC News' foreign correspondent Janice Mackey Freyer, who is uh, stationed in Beijing for us, was on board that patrol flight, and she filed this report on the tensions in the South China Sea. Chuck, we were on board this U.S. Navy P-8 Poseidon surveillance aircraft high over the South China Sea, flying over man-made islands that China has been fortifying and the U.S. sees as unlawful. And these aren't tiny little rocky outcrops. One of them is about 700 acres. It looks like an aircraft carrier featuring a runway, radar sites, hangars, and according to the Navy, possibly surface-to-air missiles. It's the militarization of these islands that are one part of China's challenge to U.S. influence in the region. During the flight, the PLA was sending warnings over the radio, telling the pilots, American aircraft, no more approaching, you bear full responsibility. And then the flight was intercepted. A Chinese J-11 fighter jet, uh, about 500 feet off the wing, flew beside the aircraft for well over an hour. The encounter, in the Navy's words, was professional, but it's a sign of a more assertive China, along with deeper ties to Russia and to North Korea, the posturing on Taiwan. It's all opening a new front here. Uh, the U.S. and its allies in the region, like the Philippines, Japan and Australia, are now ramping up defenses, like that recent deal uh, for the U.S. to have access to four new military bases in the Philippines. The question is how this standoff in the South China Sea, which for now is at a distance, is going to get resolved without a conflict. Chuck? Janice Mackey-Ferrer with incredible first-hand footage there, terrific reporting by you, and you can see this is why, why we should all be so concerned here. We are a miscommunication away if we're not careful. Up next, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried faces more campaign finance charges. Some new indictments reveal new evidence of just how far he attempted to spread his web of political influence. The idea that simply political donations to prop up the fake crypto market. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. Cryptocurrency mogul Sam Bankman-Fried's legal issues have now expanded from the financial world to the political world. With the FTX founder now charged with making hundreds of illegal campaign donations, according to federal prosecutors, Bankman-Fried directed up to $100 million in illegal campaign donations to both Democrats and Republicans through two FTX executives that essentially acted as straw donors. Bankman-Fried was already facing charges in connection with the collapse of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange. Alex Seitzwalt is a senior politics reporter for NBC News, and he joins me now. And Alex, you know, the more we learn about Sam Bankman-Fried, I've interviewed him multiple times. Even when I interviewed him, he seemed to acknowledge that the whole point of political donations was essentially to get credibility for what they're doing. Boy, it seems like it was part of the scheme. Well, that's exactly what the U.S. Uh, attorney in the Southern District of New York is alleging in this new indictment uh, unsealed Thursday, which has four new counts, including these uh, 
federal election violations. They say over 300 illegal contributions, totaling up to $100 million. They systematically uh, use one FTX executive to give to left-wing candidates, the other to give to Republican candidates, allegedly. And uh, they have chat records that show them using the word transactional, saying this is all part of our transactional uh, you know, developing of, of interest in Washington, D.C. And uh, in the indictment, they specifically say that this was uh, the part of the larger scheme for Sam Bankman-Fried to yeah. uh, build his own personal brand and also to help the company uh, with regulators. You know, Alex, not to like turn this into a uh, woe is us about our ridiculous campaign finance system, but my goodness, how easy is it to scam Congress? If you have a big enough amount of money, you can convince Congress that any any business you're running is on the up and up if you're given enough donations. Uh, that's certainly what uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and his uh, fellow alleged co-conspirators assumed, and they got away with it for a long time. Yes, they did. Uh, and about a, a month ago, I called around to all the big kind of uh, campaign finance reform activists, the people who have been in the trenches for a long time, and I asked them, you know, now that we have this big scandal where this guy clearly took advantage of these lax uh, rules that we have and, and also crossed over them, allegedly, is there any hope for reform? Will Congress do anything? Mm -hmm. And the answer from the people who want this more than anyone else was no. They are just very pessimistic about the prospect that anyone... Uh, that Congress specifically will do anything about this because Congress benefits from uh, wealthy people giving them money. And, you know, occasionally those wealthy people run into problems, uh, but ultimately they prefer the lax system. Yeah, I mean, the only way this gets cleaned up is if the person taking the money is held to account for the dirty money. And we do not have a system that does that. That's right. There is uh, one member of Congress that I'm aware of, Becca Bilet, uh from Vermont, who is cooperating with prosecutors uh, because there's a question, you know, when you're talking about this size of, of donations and because it was uh, supposed to be transactional, was it communicated to these members of Congress where this money was coming from? That mm -hmm. is Sam Bankman for, you know, think about us when you're writing crypto regulation. She says, of course, she didn't do anything uh, wrong. But, you know, if they start to feel the heat, that's when it will really matter. It is. Alex Seitzwald, uh, this has been the unpacking this story is going to end up showing us a much bigger uh, a much bigger tale of just how easily corruptible Washington gets when big money's involved. Anyway, great reporting, my friend. Good to see you. Uh, we'll be Absolutely. back Monday Thanks, with more Meet the Press now. That I promise. And if it's Sunday, it's Meet the Press on your local NBC news stations. As I've already previewed, my guests will be uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Republican Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.